When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to ACAST for hosting and monetizing the podcast. A 
hi, hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, the woman who yells and loves Euripides with the fire of a thousand suns. Liv, right, my name. I have been so, so enjoying just looking at plays lately in general. I mean, I always have, but they're becoming more common on the show as I get through like all the myths that have large amounts of content. There's still so, so, so much I have not yet covered. So I'm certainly not thinking I'll run out of content anytime soon. But part of that is because it's become time to look more at the plays. Between Iphigenia at Aulis and Prometheus Bound last year and now the Trachinii and Alcestis, I'm just perpetually blown away by how incredible they are. Like not just for ancient sources, ancient works of art, but just plays in general. Like I'm I'm not a big play reader, but Greek tragedies, man, they're becoming some of my favorite things to cover on the show. And certainly covering Prometheus Bound and then Trachinii has given me a greater respect for Aeschylus and Sophocles, but my love will always lie with Euripides. His works are just too fascinating. He was just so interested in life and relationships and humanity. Alcestis is such a good example of this. So where did we last leave this unique, beautiful, and weird play by my beloved Euripides? It begins with Apollo, not really as a god, as as a divinity stepping in, but just as a character to introduce the story. He had been serving Admetus and witnessed all of what had happened. It's Apollo who introduces this couple, Alcestis and Admetus, and their situation. He then literally fights death, at least verbally, and both gods leave, never to appear on stage again. Beginning with gods is such an interesting choice just in itself. Like, they're typically there for the end, to close things with a bang, or, you know, in Prometheus, they're there throughout. They're there to cause some big change. Here, they're just explaining stuff. Apollo introduces Alcestis and Admetus, this married couple in Phiri and Thessaly. Apollo tricked the fates into letting Admetus live longer than he was meant to, but in return, someone else had to choose to take his place in the underworld. In the end, that someone is to be his beloved wife, Alcestis, who's choosing to sacrifice herself. There are so many weird things happening here. So many places that just seem ripe for my form of judgment. Admetus being selfish and fucking with the fates. The typical patriarchal mess that is Alcestis volunteering to die in place of her husband. The idea that she will act as this martyr, the so-called perfect wife. A wife who will die for her husband because women are less important. But these judgments and commentary haven't really felt right yet. (laughs) In typical live fashion, I'm reading this for the first time as I write episodes for you. So I'm learning how it goes as you do. But for now, I don't know. I feel for Admetus, his conversation with his dying wife, his grief and guilt, it feels genuine. Their love feels genuine. She feels less like a martyr and more like a human put in a completely impossible situation who is being turned into a martyr. Which is, of course, why I say again, I fucking love Euripides.
This is episode 164. A bit of father-son fighting over who deserves to live. Euripides is Alcestis. As Alcestis lays dying, surrounded by her children and husband, she makes Admetus promise one thing. He will never remarry, never subject their children to a stepmother. Admetus agrees, very happily. It's the least he can do, given his wife is dying in place of him. So he agrees, and Alcestis notes it to their children. She then tells Admetus that, quote, now you are mother to these children in my place. He agrees, yes, I'm their mother now since they're losing you. He laments, why is it Alcestis and not him? Why can't he go with her? Now I want to say that these are questions we have answers to. But again, let's give Admetus the benefit of the doubt for now. The family is dealing with so much. They call out, questioning destiny, denying it. Alcestis says that darkness is clouding over her, filling her eyes. Admetus can't face it, but it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter, because it's too late. With a last farewell to her children, Alcestis dies there on the stage. And that is the only unambiguous on-stage death in surviving Greek tragedy. It's so unambiguous that Alcestis dies right on stage in this moment that the chorus announces it to the audience. Like, imagine you're watching this play, and honestly, with this one, you're probably not that familiar with the background of the myth if you've even heard of it at all. And within the first third of the play, the eponymous character dies. She dies surrounded by her husband and children in a dramatic but not remotely over-the-top fashion. It's very staid and real and emotional. She dies and the chorus announces it. And that's not even the end of the sadness that happens before the halfway point of the play. One of her children speaks, cries out, asks what's happened to them now their mother's gone. Quote, my mama has gone below. She's no more in the sunlight. The child goes on, calling out to their mother, begging, pleading. It is so heart-wrenching. And Adventist does little to comfort his child, really just confirming the facts. She is dead. They're alone. But the child continues, ending another short passage with, quote, With you gone, mother, the house lies in ruins. With Alcestis dead, Admetus must prepare her for burial. She began the process, though, while she still lived, because it's a woman's job, and so Alcestis, knowing that she was dying, began to prepare herself for her eventual burial. Admetus has only to finish the task. 
He calls to the chorus and to all the people of Thessaly to mourn Alcestis with him, to cut their hair and wear black robes, not to play music, not a single note on the lyre should be played for a full year. Quote, I'll never bury a dearer corpse than this one, never a woman who's treated me better. She deserves my reverence. She alone gave her life for mine. And with this, Admetus and his children return to their home, leaving the chorus on the stage. The chorus sings of Alcestis, of her death, how she was the best wife, the best woman. They sing of her glory, they hope she's welcomed in the underworld, that she finds a happy home there. They say that she will be sung of all over the Greek world, that songs will be sung in Sparta, in Athens, quote, such is the story your death has left for the singers of songs. Then they sing of their own desire to free her from her fate, that if they could, they would retrieve her from the underworld, away from the river Cocytus, the river of wailing. There's such a good line in here. They say, quote, May the earth fall lightly upon you, lady. May the earth fall lightly upon you. Ugh. The chorus continues their song of Alcestis. They sing of her until they're interrupted by a visitor. A man strides on the stage. He's wearing a lion-skin cloak and holding a club. Yes, it's Heracles. That's right, Heracles. Did you remember I mentioned him last episode? That this play fit in with my ongoing Heracles theme of episodes? Ugh. How odd and interesting this thing is. We're not even halfway through. We've had Apollo bicker with literal death. A woman dies on stage in place of her husband and the play is named after her. And then in walks in the most famous hero of all the Greek world. And he's looking for Admetus. Heracles asks the chorus whether he will find Admetus at home. They ask him why he's there. He tells them he's in the process of performing a task for the king of Tyrans, Eurystheus. So we can now sort ourselves into Heracles' story. He's not dead yet. That will come later, obviously. But what he is is in the middle of one of those famed twelve labors. We're very early in his story. The hero is still trying to make up for what he did, how he killed his own wife and children in a fit of divine madness. And so he finds himself there in Thessaly at the home of Admetus, stopping off en route to his next task for Eurystheus. He's on his way to Thrace to steal Diomedes' horses and chariot. The chorus is interested in Heracles' story, but they're also a bit horrified. Don't you know what type of man Diomedes is? They ask him. I've never been there, he replies. You won't get his horses without a fight, they explain. I don't have another option, he counters. I can't say no to these labors. The chorus then explains why they're cautioning him as they are. Those horses eat human meat, they tell him. They tear men to pieces. Heracles doesn't believe them. I mean, they're talking about horses. But the chorus insists, confirming that these are not just any horses. They're more like wild animals. Quote, You'll see their mangers stream with blood. Ares himself is their father, they tell him. 
Of course, Heracles isn't scared. He's seen worse. He basically tells him as much before Admetus joins them on stage, welcoming Heracles to his lands. This play is unique for many reasons, but one of them is that it plays with the line between tragedy and comedy in a very notable way, as if it can't quite decide which it's going for, which is how I want to introduce the last interactions I gave you, but also these next ones between Admetus and Heracles. Admetus welcomes Heracles by wishing him joy, and so Heracles wishes it back to him. This, of course, isn't quite the right fit for Admetus's current state. And when he answers with, I wish, Heracles clocks that not only is Admetus a little down in his welcoming, but his hair is cut short, a sign of mourning. Heracles asks him why this is. He replies that he's about to bury someone who died that same day. Not one of your children, Heracles guesses. No, my children are safe. Your father was quite old, he continues. Nope, he's fine too. And from here, well, they launch into a very odd back and forth, a stichomythia, of quick lines to one another debating who has died. Or rather, Admetus seems hesitant to admit that it's Alcestis. Heracles specifically says, surely Alcestis isn't dead, to which Admetus indicates she's both alive and dead? Confusing, yes, and Heracles is just as confused. They go on and on, with Admetus suggesting it's her, but also not confirming she's dead, instead being supremely weird about it and making things awkward for everyone. Heracles knows Alcestis agreed to die for Admetus. He says as much, to which Admetus replies, quote, If she's agreed to that, how alive is she? And when Heracles replies that Admetus should wait until she is truly dead to mourn for her, Again, not clear on whether the poor woman still lives, Adamantus continues to be bizarre, saying, quote, The one about to die is dead and gone without dying. Like, what? What, Admetus? Your wife is dead. What? <laughs> it goes on like this. Why are you crying? Who is dead? Heracles asks, trying to get the truth from his friend. A woman, Admetus tells him. And then again, more back and forth, more Heracles trying to get a straight answer out of Admetus, with Admetus just being truly, deeply weird. In the end, he refuses to admit that Alcestis is dead. Instead, he welcomes Heracles as a guest in his home. Even when Heracles tries to get out of it, feeling how incredibly weird Admetus is being. How he's clearly not telling the whole truth. Still, Admetus won't take no for an answer. It is awkward as all fuck, definitely meant to be played for comedy, with that undertone of, your wife literally just died in your arms. And it's not a question of Xenia, either. Heracles makes it very clear that he will move on to another host, because it isn't right for him to be there with Admetus in mourning, and Admetus insists that he should still stay. It's just weird, all around. Even the chorus finds it utterly bizarre when Admetus finally convinces, or really almost forces, Heracles to stay there as his guest. He's brought inside by some attendants, and then Admetus is left outside with the chorus who say, quote, What are you doing? Burdened by such misfortune, you can bear to play the host? Are you a fool? 
To this, Admetus pulls the Xenia card, but it's pretty clear it isn't applicable here. He has an out. He's in mourning. He won't be deemed a bad host, won't get into any trouble. Instead, he outright lies to Heracles, conceals the fact that his wife's dead body is inside and he's meant to be preparing her, mourning her. Specifically, he's meant to do so for a full year. A full year without uh, celebrations, without feasting, without music. He promised this to Alcestis only moments ago. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, his eyes wet with tears, he opens his doors to a guest, while in the house he weeps over the body of his dear wife, dead just now. That's how the chorus begins their antistrophe here, the final bit of their choral song, once Admetus has entered the house after Heracles, after the chorus has indicated that Admetus straight up lied to Heracles about the situation in the home, about his grief and his state of mourning. And with this, Admetus returns to the stage once more. This time he has his attendants with him who carry Alcestis, prepared for her funeral pyre. Heracles is not with him. He's inside. He still has no idea what's going on. But before Admetus can continue on with his wife's body, the chorus spots his father, Fares, who is approaching with offerings for Alcestis in death. Fares addresses Admetus. He says he's there to help his son through these hard times. He's there with offerings for Alcestis, the great wife who sacrificed herself for her husband. Quote, She burnished the reputation of every woman by stealing her heart to do this noble act. Ugh. The martyrdom of Alcestis is growing stronger with every moment of this play. Not brought on by herself, but... It is pretty gross the more I read of it. But it feels intentional. It's so over the top. The number of times they mention how great she was, but specifically how great she was for sacrificing herself for her husband. The implication being that he deserves to live over her, and she saw that. Euripides is doing something on purpose here, but it is tough to read all the same. And Admetus, well, faced now with his own father... Admetus reveals a little more about his character. He is not happy to see his father, and even less happy that the man thought to come in mourning for Alcestis. As far as Admetus sees it, his father is the reason Alcestis is now dead. He didn't offer to take Admetus's place, so Alcestis did, and thus Admetus makes very clear to his father that he is not welcome. He goes so far as to suggest, though it isn't clear whether he's completely serious, that he isn't even the true son of his mother, that he was smuggled into the palace and falsely named their son. He is very, very angry with his parents. And I mean, is that fair? None of this is reasonable. I'm not sure how angry you can be at who did and did not offer to die in your place. Though, as Admetus sees it, his parents are old, so one of them should have offered to go in his place. And because they didn't, they're basically dead to him. Admetus goes off on his father and rants for a very long time. He finishes his speech with the lines, quote, What empty prayers for death old people make when they complain about a long life and old age. When death is right there, no one wants to die. 
old age no longer seems so bad. Son, whom do you think you're taunting? Is a quote from Fairies' response to his son. He goes on to remind Admetus that he is not a man enslaved by him, nor a servant at all, but his own father. I gave you life is another line that comes in. Fairies is not having Admetus's anger or accusations, and he can give as much as he takes. He proceeds to launch into a speech just as long as Admetus's own, basically calling him out on all of his shit, including, quote, I raised you. I do not owe you my life. I didn't inherit a custom from my father that fathers die for sons. Greeks don't do that. Your good or bad luck is all your own. I'm not normally one to use the phrase burn, but I mean, honestly, that's what this is. Fairies is just immediately there like, no, dude, you don't get to come at me like this just because I wouldn't give up my life because the fates wanted yours to end. This is not how parenthood works, nor is it something that should ever be asked, which I mean, he's not wrong. This is all messy and weird anyway, just the very idea that you can not only beat fate, but that escaping said fate means someone else has to sacrifice themselves. And Admetus seems to feel that his parents should have just happily volunteered for this. This is some toxic shit. Honestly, Fairies' speech is just too good. I've got to share more. He goes on, quote, How have I wronged or deprived you? Don't die for me, and I won't die for you. You enjoy your life. Don't you think your father does? Truly, truly, like, accurate. <laughs> Fairies continues, just fully calling Admetus out, suggesting he's found a new way to cheat death. He can just continue to convince wives to die for him instead. He notes how selfish every bit of this scenario is. Everything Admetus has said and done has been selfish and generally just gross. It really puts it into perspective, this man's love for his wife last episode. Like, sure, he does seem to love her, but in the end, he's the reason she died. He let her sacrifice herself for him when he could have just simply not... He is as selfish as they come. Still, I've changed my tune once before in this play already, so who knows? There's a reason it's a notable tragicomic and that it is morally ambiguous as all hell. That it has this special place amongst Euripides' work as one of his weirdest. This play is special. When Fairies is finally finished, the chorus steps in to chide him briefly, but they actually did the same to Admetus when he finished speaking the first time. It's minimal, too, just sort of lip service to the whole situation. Like, oh, well, we tried to make them get along. We said something, at least. Needless to say, Admetus is not changed by his father's speech. He is much too stuck in his own feelings now, too stuck in his own victimhood to possibly be convinced otherwise. Admetus and his father, Fairies, are not finished with their debate. Their fight, their bickering, whatever you want to call it. They begin a back and forth that, like so much of this play, is fascinating. Euripides is examining life and death and familial relationships and bonds. He's looking at what it means to be family and what it doesn't mean. He's looking at sacrifice and martyrdom, examining them through these various dialogues, but particularly this one. Admetus questions whether the deaths of the young and the old mean the same, to which Fairies counters, quote, 
We are obliged to live one life, not two. It's a good line. Then Admetus tries to insult his father by suggesting he's too concerned with a long life, to which Fairies rightly notes, aren't you burying your wife instead of yourself right this moment? The blame for which, unsurprisingly, Admetus tries to place back on his father. The two men dissolve into straight-up bickering, and with some truly ridiculous claims on the part of Admetus. I want to say that we're really meant to side with fairies here, but I suppose I can never be sure. I think more than anything, Euripides is just examining two sides of this intriguing question of sacrifice and life and death. How far is too far when it comes to familial expectations? Who is actually being selfish here? Who is being ridiculous and unreasonable? I mean, fine, I think it's pretty clearly Admetus, but still, the question is there, and it's an interesting one in itself. In the end, though, it doesn't matter who is being selfish or ridiculous, whether Admetus makes some reasonable points or whether fairies is most righteous and morally superior. It's just about the conversation itself, because, well, they don't agree in the end, they don't make up. Admetus's last line that he shouts as his father walks away from him, leaving Fairi for his own home, are, quote, Rot away in old age as you deserve, you and your wife super nice father-son relationship that definitely doesn't get demolished and then completely left for dead. And, well, that's it for fairies. Just like it that was it for Apollo and Thanatos. He's there, speaking with Admetus, almost just to philosophize, to make some points about their relationship and Admetus's expectations and actions. Admetus is there to counter every one of those points, to yell at his father about how horrible he is not to grow at all, just to yell about how he's ruined his son's life, how both his parents are dead to him now. And that's it. Admetus is left yelling into the void as his father has left the stage. And when his father is finally gone, he turns to the chorus, who have just had to watch all of this happen, jumping in on the side of both men, or the side of a reasoned, calm argument over a screaming match. They don't comment on the argument now that it's done. They save their words for Alcestis's body, which has just been with them on the stage this entire time. And given the three-actor rule of Greek tragedy, that is, that there was only ever three speaking actors on stage at any given time, along with the chorus in most cases, that means there could have even been an actor playing Alcestis's body just lying there on a stretcher of sorts before the audience. The entire time this father and son were screaming about her sacrifice, about life and death, and who deserves what. It's darkly fascinating, isn't it? This play is so very odd in its structure, its tone, honestly... Most every choice Euripides has made in its creation, broadly. It's just weird. <laughs> but we'll talk more about that next week. For now, Alcestis's body is on the stage, and finally, finally, Adamantus returns his attention to the corpse of his beloved wife, looking to, finally, lay her to rest. Admetus and the enslaved people who are attending to Alcestis's body carry her off, off the stage and in the direction of where we're to understand her funeral pyre will be lit. The chorus is left alone on the stage only briefly, before an attendant comes out of the palace and speaks to them and the audience in a soliloquy of sorts. He begins a speech about Heracles. 
Remember Heracles? Yeah, he's been inside the house all this time, and we're about to find out what he's been up to. And we're about to find out what he's been up to while Admetus fought his father over his wife's corpse. And, well, it hasn't been good. Or rather, it hasn't been appropriate for the grief that's taken hold of the household. Everyone, servants and enslaved people, have been grieving over Alcestis's death in whatever way they are, whether they're grieving the woman or some kindness that she might have brought comparatively. They're grieving, and Heracles is spitting in their faces. The attendant explains to the audience what's gone on. I've served many, many men in Admetus's house, he begins, but none have been so awful as Heracles. He came into the home while the house was grieving, when he saw that Admetus was grieving. He came in anyway, and then he treated the whole of the household as though nothing were wrong, as though it were any other day. He was demanding, asking for any little thing that he might have missed or been forgotten, not being remotely understanding or kind given the situation, but instead demanding and petulant. And add to that, he's gotten drunk. The lush. Okay, the attendant is much more eloquent. Quote, He takes an ivy wood goblet in his hands and drinks the dark and potent wine unmixed until the wine's flame wraps him in its heat. Someone remind me to describe drunkenness as the wine's flame wrapping me in heat from now on. He's drunk and rowdy, the attendant goes on. He's bellowing out a song with no discernible melody. Quote, singing without regard for Admetus's suffering and we were crying for our mistress. Heracles is simply doing exactly, exactly what Admetus promised Alcestis would not happen in their house after her death for a full year He's brought music and mirth, happiness and celebration into the home of a family in mourning. And, the attendant adds, the servants have been instructed by Admetus not to show their tears or their grief, but just to wait upon this man who's showing them such incredible disrespect. The attendant finishes his speech, quote, she softened her husband's rage and saved us so often from pain. Aren't I right to hate this guest, this intruder in our suffering? And thus begins the third bit of drama in this oddly disparate, if very weird, tragic and yet comedic play. Uh, thank you all for listening. I am so intrigued by this play. It is not at all what I was expecting. Like, I've heard of this one so many times, heard it referred to as favorite so often, or maybe I've just heard its name, but I've just assumed, I guess, that it was more like the other Euripides plays that I've read. I've covered so many on the show by now. Bacchae, Medea, The Trojan Women, Iphigenia and Alice, maybe more I'm forgetting. I just assumed I had kind of figured out Euripides. But no, 
this one is so freaky, for lack of a better word. And it's even more freaky and weird and unique than I've shared so far. Like, we'll get further into what makes it special next week. Whew. As for the story so far, I mean, I've totally turned on Admetus, I think. Maybe he does truly love his wife as much as it seemed, but if he does, he still handled it very, very poorly. Maybe that's just how deeply selfish people love. Or maybe he's not as selfish as he seems. Maybe there's more to understand here. <sighs> and now, add to all this that the Heracles drama that we've just learned. Wild, honestly. Who was worse between them? Heracles for being such an oaf, not noticing that maybe something more is going on here and he should just have figured it out or even just calm the fuck down and maybe stop drunkenly singing in a room full of people who look on the brink of tears? Or Admetus for insisting upon hosting Heracles when he knew full well he shouldn't and even worse, not actually confirming to Heracles that the household was, in fact, in mourning for none other than Alcestis. Needless to say, I cannot wait for next week's finale episode. What do you want to bet I'll be surprised once more by how Euripides continues to handle this story? Plus, I will be speaking with fan favorite Dr. Ellie Mackin-Roberts all about this play, one that she volunteered for long before I'd even decided to cover it. So needless to say, I'm just so excited to hear her insights and to ask so many questions that are now raging through my head. Stay tuned. And because I've continued to remember to share some of the wonderful five-star reviews that I receive from you incredible listeners... Here's another. This one is from Shamim Rizwana in Belgium. Greek summer read. Always wanted to learn about Greek myths, but never got into it. Now that I'm planning a trip to Greece this summer, thought it would be cool to know stuff before landing there. And oh my God, I've struck gold. Her sarcasm, candor, tone, and delivering those stories with facts mixed with the right amount of edge. Ah, I'm loving it. Thanks, Zeus. I found this right before my trip. Oh, but he's an ass, I hear. Great review. Thank you. That's fun. Uh, Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympian and handles so many podcast-related things. God, she's a godsend, actually. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. <sighs> Greek tragedy, or rather tragic comedy in this case. Am I right? God, fucking love it. I am Liv, and, well, I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. 
Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.